Welcome y bienvenidos to the Bridge Covenant Church Podcast. Whether you weren't able to join us on Sunday or just thought the message was so nice you listened to it twice, we pray these words will encourage you in your walk with Jesus. For more information about today's sermon or to learn more about Bridge, please visit us at bridgecovenant.org. Well, good morning. I am Scott, uh, the other co-lead pastor, along with Carmen, my wife. Welcome to you. Glad you're here. Now, as you've just uh, finished reading the New Testament during our Immerse Messiah series, you may remember more than a few times in which Jesus spoke in parables. And parables were around long before Jesus, but Jesus made parables kind of a thing. Uh, And you'd be hard-pressed to find a person who had not who has just never heard of anything like the prodigal or a prodigal son or a good Samaritan. Jesus knew people just didn't want facts about God. They wanted a story. And Jesus was a brilliant storyteller who knew how to make things interesting. Uh, And you know what a good story is. It entertains you while at the same time transporting you to another world in which you become involved and informed and motivated. And a good story mirrors the real world. And yet in the story we find new insights which help us to see our world more closely. So Carmen and I are excited for this series uh, on the parables of Jesus. In it we will unabashedly learn from and share insights from a good friend of ours who just so happens to be uh, one of the world's leading scholars on parables. Uh, His name is Klein Snodgrass. He was a professor at our seminary and uh, he continues to write and teach and pastor the church with his incredible academic gifts. And uh, I'm just going to say, please bear with me as I introduce this series. I'm kind of, uh, I don't want to excuse myself, but I'm so excited for this series. And, uh, but you know, this guy who's in his late 70s, this is his life's work. And it's big. And I got into it and I really uh, over-promised. And I think I've (laughs) under-delivered trying to give you some justice about what parables are, and, and then also to take a look at a few of them in that same amount of small time. So um, next week, Carmen will preach, but uh, this week I'm going to spend a significant time just talking about parables in general, and I won't come close to doing it justice. I'm trying to condense a ton of information into just a few minutes, but why would I do it? I, 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 we want you to have a good foundation from which to approach and appreciate Jesus' parables. And that means we should try to get on the same page about just what a parable is and why Jesus used parables. Now, a bit more about story. Uh, Klein says it well. He says, stories are one of the few places that allow us to see reality, at least the reality the author creates. And there, to a degree we cannot do in real life, we can discern motives, we can keep score, know who won, Uh, what success and failure look like. The storyteller is in control so that we are forced to see from new angles and so that the message cannot be easily evaded. Hearers become willing accomplices, even if the message is hostile. And from this other world, we are invited to understand and evaluate and eventually, hopefully, redirect our lives. So apart from personal experience, stories are the quickest way to learning. But a parable is a special kind of story. In fact, some parables really stretch that definition. 
by quite a bit. They may not even have a plot or a narrative that moves the story along. Some of Jesus' parables are a little more than a sentence. So it's a wide group of sayings. Uh, so how can we understand Jesus' parables? Well, I've got, a, I've got some things just to be thinking about. Uh, so there's really not that many things up there. One's in Spanish and one's in English there. Uh, but first remember that why is the story told? It's, it's extremely important. Why? The teller, Jesus, has an agenda. Jesus tells the parable because he, because Jesus, thinks it is important. And so we would do well to pay close attention and ask, why is Jesus telling this story? And while there are different kinds of parables, all of them can generally be called kind of an expanded analogy. These analogies are comparisons or contrasts. Uh, analogies make a little sense, though, without a reference. I can't say, uh, you know, this is, I, I'm going to tell a story about this if you don't know what I'm talking about originally, okay? So uh, the next question is, what is Jesus referencing when he tells a parable? So what is he talking about? So here's a key for you. Uh, the parables of Jesus are referencing the kingdom of God. In fact, the kingdom of God is presupposed. That means you must assume the kingdom of God already exists in order to follow the thinking. If you have no understanding of the story of God, then parables will kind of be lost on you. Parables were the means that Jesus used most frequently to explain the kingdom of God, to show the character of God, and the expectations that God has for humans. Unfortunately, and probably most often by people like us who follow Jesus, parables have been abused, and they've been used for far more or way less than they were intended. Uh, some, t some treat them like Play-Doh. I'm just going to shape these words to whatever goal I already have in mind. And then some trying to tame them down and force rules upon them in order to give them a meaning which is uh, easier to swallow. Now, if people in the New Testament had to ask, what are you saying, Jesus? Then we need to ask the same questions. What are you saying? Is a question of intent. We need to ask the same question and be very careful not to declare too early, but we're going to try to make some declarations, but we don't want to just say, I think it means. We want to wait for Jesus and let Jesus tell. And if our conclusion is not about the kingdom of God, then maybe we need to read it again. It begs to be heard again. So for us to interpret Jesus' parables, we, need to, uh, we have to understand Jesus' intent in sharing them. And obviously there was something Jesus was sure people just weren't getting. And we would do well to sit at Jesus' feet and listen for what Jesus is communicating. And, and as we have often said from up front here, we need to understand what Jesus is saying to the people that he was talking to, his disciples, his fellow Jews. Before we make the move to the meaning the parables hold for us, if it is even different. Okay, so the audience first and then us. So our goal in this series is to allow the, par uh, the parables to speak to us. And only then can we move from explanation to implementation. Because whether they are clear or mysterious, parables eventually call us to quit messing around and to do. <coughs> Excuse me. We are called to believe, and that belief carries the burden of action. 
So, which is, that's why we start talking about parables by talking about stories. Stories communicate reality. And if they are communicating, then they have meaning. And that meaning seeks to change things. So if the question for each parable is, how did Jesus seek to change attitudes and behaviors with this parable? What was he trying to do? Because parables are extended analogies, uh, one tendency over the years was to allegorize them. Okay, and some of you have heard of allegories. They're uh, uh, like, well, maybe you haven't, but Paul Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, did I remember that right? Okay, it's just like everything means something else. Allegory is a hidden meaning. For instance, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, each and every element or character of the parable was taken to stand for something else. Okay, the man, Adam. Jerusalem, the heavenly city. Jericho, the moon, which stands for our mortality. The robbers, they're the devil. The Good Samaritan is Jesus. The donkey is the incarnation, and so on. Okay, does that sound like we are asking what he's trying to communicate or like we're talking about the kingdom of God? So they're interesting meditation exercises, but we don't want to base uh, what we believe about Jesus on those. Uh, those attempts at understanding a parable, if we aren't careful, they end up being uh, really meditations on church theology. Okay, we as a church believe this, so maybe this story is about this. The interpretation ends up being a story of what the hearer wants the parable to say or thinks it should say. Again, what was Jesus' intent? So allegory is not a legitimate way to interpret a parable. It replaces the message of Jesus with the message of, oh, say, the church or some other ideology. And that practice assumes we know the truth before we even read the parable. And then we find the truth in the text, even if the text is about something completely different. Okay, so that's reading into the text instead of allowing the text to speak to you. And now, all that is not to say that the parables do not use allegory. Okay? But the trick is to allow the parable to use the allegory it is using, not to replace the allegory with another allegory. So I don't want to substitute something that's already been made clear in that story, okay? If we know the parables are about the kingdom of God, the character of God, and God's expectations for humans, then we know the boundaries, uh, the language, and, and we're not expected to exceed them. So I'm spending some time on this introduction because parable, parables are kind of a wild bunch, okay? You may discover about one parable, it, it, it may have nothing to do with another parable, Okay? Parables are about the kingdom of God, God's character, and God's expectation, but uh, they can come approach in very different ways and say different things. And we're going we're gonna, to, over the next eight weeks, kind of categorize them into various uh, kind of the ones that have kind of the similar message. So Jesus, uh, if our interpretation is kind of something else than the kingdom of God, then we're probably on the wrong track. So Jesus, he's a master storyteller. He's aware that we always bring our preconceived ideas into our understanding of God. Anybody guilty? Yeah. And, and, and so we think about God and God's kingdom because of the, we, the way we think God should be because of the way we think. Uh, when we think we know the story, our mind jumps to its own already existing conclusion. 
And parables are powerful because they are, okay, so underlined up there, double indirect communication. So, that sounds complicated, but we'll talk about it. Consider yourself, okay? Do you want to hear something that doesn't agree with what you already think? No. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you are open enough to actually listen to the different points of view of people, but then maybe you somehow find a way to mold those ideas into some kind of proof for what you already think. Yeah, yeah like, for example, do you later use those ideas as proof of that's how those people think? That's just a good example of that. So communication communicates by giving value to a set of relating ideas. Okay, that's just kind of a communication definition. Uh, we give value by, to a set of relating ideas. So I'm going to get uh, tongue twisty on you. Uh, this means this, and that means that. When we know what this and that mean, we can all communicate. But when I've decided what this and that actually mean, and then you come along and tell me that this is actually that, and that that is something else, we have trouble communicating. Now, I may be willing to concede that what I thought that meant may be wrong, but let's be honest, I won't like it. Okay. In fact, I may not like it so much that I may decide that you are actually wrong and need to conform to my idea of that. Okay. So you're following all my this's and that's. Okay. The kind of this kind of non-communication is all the more troublesome when it comes to big identity markers like politics, like religion. Okay. This point is very clear if you paid attention to how much most of the religious leaders in Jesus' time could not or would not hear what he was saying. They were so entrenched in their this and that about the kingdom of God and God's character and God's expectations that they thought Jesus was the worst kind of person saying something different. They thought he was someone who was blaspheming God, saying God says this when God doesn't say that. That's blasphemy. So Jesus spoke very plainly, and yet as we read Scripture, we often are not too different from the religious leaders we still have trouble hearing and believing what Jesus has to say. And we can be Christians for a long, long time and have that problem. And do you think Jesus was aware of this? You know, my son Gideon, he just turned five, so keep that in mind when I say that if uh, I tell you a story about him. So if he wants to tell me something or ask me something, and I say what, uh, his response is to say the exact same thing Louder and louder and louder. Okay? He'll point, he'll point out the window while I'm driving, maybe even behind me. What is that, Dad? What? What is that, Dad? What? What is that, Dad? What, what are you pointing to? What is that? So, do you remember this scripture? You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. 
Jesus used double indirect communication because it brings entirely new ways to hear. We get involved in hearing a story or a parable, and because it is not direct, our defenses are not up. In fact, we go along with the story because we think we know what it's about. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, yeah. We find ourselves nodding our heads and agreeing, and then, boom, Jesus flips the values of this and that, and we find that he was talking about something else. But it's too late for us. The damage is done. We have let in some new information. <laughs> Our defenses were down. And now we're left with the task of ignoring the information that disturbs our safe little brain fort. Or we allow that fresh way of thinking to stimulate our consciousness and move us to action. So double direct communication is not as complicated as it sounds. Let's start with direct communication. If I want to tell you how important the kingdom of God is, I could say to you, the kingdom of God is so important that it's worth everything you could give. You're like, oh yeah, I already know that. I know. Everybody knows that. I'm talking to you. I'm talking about the kingdom of God. Direct. But what if I stop talking to you? And what if I don't talk about the kingdom of God? I'd say I made this up. A woman from Europe heard she could win the lottery if she spent all her money on tickets at the 7-Eleven. So she sold everything to buy the winning lottery ticket. That's amazing, right? See, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about some woman from a totally different place. Indirect communication. And I'm not talking about the kingdom of God. I'm talking about a lottery ticket, which would make someone set for life. So not about you, not about a kingdom. Double indirect. Okay? Double indirect communication does not speak of the hearer or the reader or the subject at hand. It uses another person and another subject to address the hearer indirectly. Okay, so there's about 11 other things, a minimum, that I want to say about parables, but I'll leave that to Carmen. I had to decide at some point, I was really enjoying my study, at some point I had to decide that we actually do have eight weeks or nine, and so maybe we don't have to do it all at once. <laughs> yep. So, before we take a look at some particular parables, does anyone have any questions about what we just talked about? Or, in other words, if a person had questions about... Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. So, I want to start this series with Jesus' parables about the present kingdom. And there's, there's six that I could have delved into, and I was just so enamored, I just kind of started the first one, and then... Later on, I was like, oh, you're out of time and space. Um, so, I'll talk about that later. But um, I'm going to talk about, I hopefully, hopefully there will be something here for you. Okay? So, I want to just start with, what do we mean by the present kingdom? Uh, so, I'll begin with what we don't mean. Okay? As there's often confusion about the kingdom of God. What is it? When is it? And, and that's why these parables are so important. Because we're not the only ones asking those questions or having confusion. Uh, especially in Jesus' day when he's talking about the kingdom and they're like, what? What are you talking about? This doesn't look like what I was thinking. So we do not mean by the kingdom of God that Jesus has returned and, <coughs> and God is judged and everything has been made right. 
It is often assumed that the kingdom of God does not exist until it exists in full. So we look forward to that, but is it possible the kingdom is already here, even if there's still evil in the world and things don't seem to yet be made right? That was the question people were asking Jesus. If he was announced in the kingdom, why were the Romans still in charge? Why hadn't Jerusalem become this perfect place? Where was God? What was God doing? When Jesus talks about the present kingdom, he is saying that the promises of the Old Testament, especially the words of the prophets, had indeed already begun with Jesus' action and words. And as we look at the parable, we'll read it and ask some questions and then look at some answers. So let's read from Mark 4. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. And by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Okay. There's a parable. And he tells it to who? He tells it to the crowds, we find out later if we read on in this chapter. Uh, is the parable related to other parables? I kind of wondered if I should ask that question before we even talked about other parables. But you know, like the parable of the sower, sowing seeds on different types of soil. You know the parable of the mustard seed. They are related. So we do find some help sometimes. But that doesn't mean that they all work the same. Uh, what do they have in common it's, it's that they deal with the question of, of why the world looks like it does if the kingdom is really present. So is, is the man and what the man does the focus? Or is it about the seed? Or is it about the harvest? No. So correct interpretation involves determining if and where there's maybe a direct connection or correlation of images. Uh, and sometimes there just isn't. Uh, here, there are no direct correlations to say the man is this, because they would be implicit or explicit in the text. Okay? So we could make up stuff about the man, etc., but it's not there. Uh, the man in this parable stands for no one. And understanding the analogy does not require identifying what the man or the seed uh, stand for. Uh, yeah, the man is active or inactive, waiting around, but the parable is about what? So even though the seed is planted and grows, the parable is about what? Even though the man harvests the crop, the parable is about what? And the answer is found in the intro, right? The parable is about the kingdom of God. So even though the man is mentioned, it is not about how humans should act. It is about what the kingdom is like. The kingdom is not dependent on human effort, and specifically not about whether you know how to plant or to make seeds grow. The analogy is not about any particular feature or image. They all work together because the analogy is about the entire process. The process. The entire process is, requ is required to make the point. And the point is to answer questions and challenges to Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom. So one answer that Jesus gives is that the kingdom's coming is more complex than we might think. 
The assumption at the time especially was the Messiah would come and kick some butt and all would be made right by tomorrow morning. And Jesus is saying that like a crop, the present kingdom is coming over the passing of time. It's happening, says Jesus, day by day. And it assumes two stages here, if we can kind of simplify. There's a time of sowing and growth and a time of harvest. Yeah. This is the new thinking Jesus' audience and we need to adopt. And maybe we're already there, but they weren't. Uh, Jesus' ministry inaugurated a sequence of action leading to the fullness of God's kingdom just as surely as sowing seeds <coughs> sets in play a spontaneous process leading to harvest. The parable asserts that the kingdom process is already underway with Jesus' teaching and activity and that the glorious revelation of the kingdom has its beginning in and is directly tied to what he is doing. So double indirect communication. It is about the kingdom, not what humans can or should do, not about seeds, not about planting. Uh, while we live our lives doing whatever it is we do, even if we don't know what is happening or how it works, Jesus has set in motion the kingdom. Am I pointing? Am I pointing too much? Okay, sorry. I've been told I've been pointing too much. I'm not pointing at anybody. Just <laughs> ah, okay. So we are servants of the kingdom, not its cause. And we are called to, to patience then as we trust God is working. And as we trust that kingdom comes to fruition when the time is right. Okay. When the time is right. So it requires faith, but it gives us hope. All right, this next one I'm going to blaze through. Uh, I'm not even going to ask any questions. I'm just going to just go. Let's look at Matthew 13, 24 through 30. And then you should know that uh, Jesus actually provides commentary on this parable later in the chapter in verses 36 through 43. So I'm going to use that even though we're not going to read that, but you have Bibles, and if you don't, there's some up there, uh, or you have your phone. Uh, so this parable can be called the weed and the weeds. Sometimes it's called the tares. Uh, one thing about titles, especially in your Bibles, one thing nice about Immerse is it doesn't predispose you to a certain thought about what is it you're going to read. Okay, But just so we know what we're talking about, the weed, weed and the weeds. So first, some farming background I think is very interesting. The weeds, or tares, look almost identical to wheat. They were a normal part of a crop. You'd always have a few tares in there. In this case, it helps to know it wouldn't be a big deal uh, unless there were more weeds than normal. And so the servants are surprised, suggesting there were more, way more weeds than expected. And the decision to not remove the weeds would only occur if there were way more weeds than expected. And because by the time they had sprouted, as it says, uh, their roots would have been intertwined. So, let me read. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the weeds sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. 
The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? One more there. An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered. Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time I will tell the harvesters, First collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. So, uh, because there were so many, this is not a normal situation. Okay? Uh, it's not like you just got you know 99.9% pure ryegrass when you plant it in your yard. Anybody ever found that it's 99.9% pure? Yeah, so somebody caused some trouble. And from Jesus' own commentary in the verses 36 to 43, we know that by good seed, uh, he actually is creating some allegory here. He's saying that we're talking about Jesus and his followers when we talk about the good seed. And we know the weeds are the evil one and those who follow the evil one. So the, the new learning here, since again we're talking about the kingdom of God, is that even though the kingdom is present, there is still evil in the world. And that really surprised people. How can this be? The expectation was that the Messiah would, would bring a pure community. All the enemies would be gone when the kingdom came. The parable addresses doubt that the kingdom could actually be present and that those expectations uh, about the present kingdom were incorrect. So the primary teaching of the parable when Jesus' commentary to his disciples is added. So it's actually spoken to a crowd, but then he he has a private session later on, and he goes in a little bit different direction. Uh, but he says the kingdom is present uh, despite the presence of evil, and that evil will be dealt with at the judgment. The focus is on the nature of the kingdom. It doesn't look like expected. Alongside the kingdom is another power, an illegitimate power, and it is also working hard to screw things up. Like in Revelation, judgment is held back. And at the same time, we are assured that judgment is certain. <clears throat> so this doesn't mean that we are to be passive about evil, just because it, it, it does exist in the present kingdom. It also does not mean that just because evil exists in the world, and even in the church, that we should not strive to be a pure community, uh, which honors Jesus in all our thoughts and actions, Indeed, there's a clear warning of judgment. And so the parable encourages us to make good choices about how we behave. We're encouraged as well in the promise of future blessing in verse 43. Like we talked about last week, this parable contributes to questions of theodicy, that kind of why are there bad things with a good God? Um, and it gives us a deeper understanding of God's sovereignty, and there's really tough questions here. We're compelled to... Uh, more maturity uh, and not naivete about the tension of a good God and kingdom alongside evil in the world. So God is not the only one at work. Uh, and not all actions in this world can be attributed to God. And God often gets blamed for every event that occurs, but God is not the cause of every event. Evil happens that can only be identified as the work of an enemy. So we need to be very careful about suggesting like some trite cliche, and this may sound crazy to some of us, but something like God is in control. Okay, it's more complicated than that Jesus teaches. 
The idea that everything that happens is God's will and something initiated by God ignores the reality of evil in the world, which this parable acknowledges. So we should not be surprised nor unaware of evil in the world. The kingdom has come in the midst of a previous age. It's new in the midst of the old. And until the kingdom comes in full, the old world and its evil are permitted. God promises to destroy all evil, but until then, God calls us to live into the present kingdom with great awareness and obedience and hope. And so we're left with a choice. In which world will we receive our identity? Will we take our identity from the old world, the one under the power of the evil one? Or will we receive our identity from the present kingdom? A kingdom of right thinking and living. This is the kingdom Jesus inaugurated. It is the present kingdom. And Jesus expects you and I to have eyes to see ears to hear, and hearts to understand. Thanks for joining us on the Bridge Covenant Church podcast. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit us at bridgecovenant.org.